Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, I speak with the people who are doing interesting things in pathology and laboratory medicine. I know you've all heard of Detroit's Daily Docket. This is a podcast that's done by the forensic pathologists at the Wayne County Medical Examiner's Office. And today, I'll be speaking with one of the co-hosts from that show, Dr. Lachlan Sung. Today on the show, we'll talk about how Dr. Sung got interested in pathology. We'll talk about his teaching experience, and we'll talk quite a bit about Detroit's Daily Docket. I found this one to be very fascinating, and I hope you do too. Okay, now here's Dr. Sung. Uh, Dr. Sung, thanks for uh, taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you for having me. You are uh, one of the co-hosts of Detroit's Daily Docket. Yes. Which uh, just finished its first season, uh, and you co-host it with uh, the other forensic pathologists there at the uh, Wayne County Medical Examiner's Office. Yes, I do. And I know in the first episode of the show, you each kind of introduced yourselves and uh, gave a little bit about your background. I wonder, could you do that for us here, uh, for for our audience? I'm, I'm curious, uh, what was it that got you interested in, in pathology and forensic medicine in particular? Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, definitely, when I was growing up, I had no idea that I was actually going to be a forensic pathologist. And in many respects, I didn't even know what pathology was. So mm-hmm. evolution to forensics really you know, took its course. When I was growing up, I definitely liked science and both the biological sciences and the physical sciences. And as I was going through my undergraduate education, I was pretty much gung-ho uh, going to go into chemical engineering. And okay. it just happened that as I went through college, that sort of evolved where I became more involved in the healthcare aspects of, of people. I volunteered at various hospitals and became much more uh, tied with that. And my interest started shifting towards medicine. And anyone that has applied to medical school or gone through the whole medical school application process knows that there's these letters that you have to get, letters of recommendation and the courses that you have to do. And, you know, getting letters was something that I never really enjoyed because I didn't it all feel comfortable just asking people to write good things about myself, but you know, those are just things you have to do. And right. thankfully I did have some you know, professors who guided me through my education and into the medical field. And I applied to medical school, not knowing necessarily what I wanted to do as a physician, but I made my applications and uh, typed my statements. And unfortunately I didn't get into medical school. Uh, at least okay. not right away. And it's one of those hard things where as you're going through college, you have an idea of what you want to do. And like next year, I'm going to go into medical school. But when you get that rejection letter, your whole world sort of falls apart and you don't know what the next step necessarily is because I fully intended on going to medical school at that time. And once you are rejected, you have to think, well, oh, geez, what do I do now? <laughs> so Right. For- yeah. For a little while, I just was trying to rack my brain thinking, do I take a year off? Do I do a fifth year of college? But luckily, one of my professors at Elma College, and that's the college I went to, he found a research position for me. And I started working at a, uh, a biochemistry research lab 
with Dr. Ann Smith. And that lab taught me a lot of things about just the scientific process, the defining experiments, trying to come up with methods, materials, the procedures. And it brought a lot of the critical thinking skills that I had in undergraduate, but really matured them. And at the same time that I did my research job during the week, on weekends, I also shadowed in a in an operating room as an operating room assistant. So I was okay. able to get involved with many of the nurses and the physicians in the operating suite. And after two years of doing research and working in the operating room, I reapplied to medical school and I was accepted at a couple and I decided to attend Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan. Mm -hmm. And the first two years of med school are more so didactic teaching uh, years where you're sitting in a classroom and you're listening to lectures. And it was during the second year that we started our pathology series of lectures. And literally we had a single lecture on forensic pathology and it was that lecture given by Dr. Lavity actually, who, mm. uh, during that time, it just sparked that interest in my mind. It really fit a lot of the things that I enjoyed, the physical nature, doing procedures, doing uh, hands-on things. And it uh, combined the medical field. And pretty much from that point forward, I gung-ho wanted to do forensics. And I didn't actually know all the steps in that I had to do to become a forensic pathologist, but that was my goal. And I, as I went through medical school, I knew I didn't want to do obstetrics and gynecology and neurology and things like that. But in order to have that basis, I took those courses, took those required rotations and tried to do my best because I knew, although I wasn't going to deliver babies in the future, that's definitely a skill that is incredibly valuable and potentially helpful in my future career. Right. So after med school, I went through a pathology residency and I still had that goal of forensic pathology. And that in my mind really helped me because I had a vision in the future. So I could tailor my residency to help bring about that future. And my uh, staff physicians were extremely helpful. They knew of my interests and didn't try to push me one way or another. Of course, they tried to attract me to their specialties, but they're really supportive of my goal of uh, becoming a forensic pathologist. And thankfully, I was able to rotate at the Wayne County Medical Examiner's Office as a resident. And I really got to know the staff here, know the building and know the operations. And after graduating from residency, I did my fellowship here at this office and had a great time. It, it's a busy office, but I think that's extremely valuable in the sense of a teaching institution because you really get to see everything and do everything. And wherever you end up working, I think during your training years, you really want to push yourself to get involved, to see those things because you never know when you might encounter them at another point in time. So after fellowship, I, they luckily employed me and I'm still here. You know, I've noticed for many of the people that I've talked to on this show already, your career path is rarely a straight line. 
Mm-hmm. And there's sometimes setbacks or, you know, tangents and things like that. I mean, that was certainly true for me. And it sounds like for you as well in residency, when you uh, started going to the medical examiner's office, was there anything that surprised you? Like, do you had an idea of what forensics was going to be and was it different from what it actually was? You definitely read the textbooks and books are great for education, but being at the office, it gives you that practical application of the skills that you learn in medical school and that you read mm-hmm. in the textbook. And I think that's a, a very important thing to do. Whatever you wish to do in the future, have an opportunity to shadow someone who does that job because you know, the textbook is just a book or lo- online information is just information. But when you're physically there, when you're hearing the sounds, smelling the smells, you get to have an appreciation for whether or not you are able, physically able to do that job. And right. that's, I think, incredibly valuable. Yeah, absolutely. Now, these days, you're a clinical assistant professor of pathology. Is that at University of Michigan? Yes. Okay. Yes. What are some, some of the courses that you, that you teach? Is it strictly like forensic pathology or do you teach general pathology also? What, what kind of things do you teach? Right now is strictly forensic pathology, and mainly it's when residents or medical students rotate at our office that we teach them on site. So as they come through our office, we are going through the general autopsy procedure, the process of block dissection, and block is the organ mass as it comes out of the body. So we Mm -hmm. teach our students and residents how to dissect those organs and then uh, examine the organs internally. not unlike what you do at the surgical station and in surge bath or surgical pathology. So the medical students, for example, they have their gross anatomy courses in their first year typically. And those normally are done on cadavers that, uh, in which the bodies have been donated for that purpose. And those bodies have been preserved. Unfortunately, that preservation process changes some of the things that you appreciate when you're actually doing an autopsy. So comparing the preserved body to a, a, an individual who is recently deceased is, or can be quite different. I'm sure mm-hmm. you can appreciate when you're going through your training, you have a formula fixed tissue. It's very much different than a fresh tissue. So right. I, I think that's another valuable aspect for the medical education where a medical student can actually see the organs in a way that is not available to them in other rotations, even in surgery. Uh, In surgery, the surgeons, they make small incisions into people because obviously you don't want to necessarily have a extremely invasive procedure if you don't need to. And visualizing the surgical field can be hard for a medical student. But here in our office, they have complete uh, access to the entire body, to all of the organs. So you can see the organ associations, heart, lungs, liver, all of those things are are available to them. So they have the opportunity to review anatomy and to become very familiar with organ association. Mm-hmm. Okay. You're, you're also involved with the pathologist assistant program at Wayne State University. Is that right? That's correct. That's correct. All right. And, and, and what do you, what do you do there? As the Wayne State University has a PA program, 
And for a very long time, they, their university and our office has had a very close relationship where okay. they send their students to our office. And depending on the year, most of the time, it's going to be an eight-week rotation. So during the time that the students are here, we teach them the entire autopsy procedure, literally from cut to close, where we teach them the evisceration, the various types of evisceration, the block dissection, also the closing of the body in preparation for release to funeral homes. So mm. it's quite intensive where the student, they have to do literally everything. And the reason for that is because a student doesn't necessarily know where they're going to end up working. And you don't necessarily know what that institution is going to ask of you. They may only want you to do the restoration or they may only want you to take out an individual's brain. You don't know that. But if you don't have that base knowledge, you're going to be, you're not going to be prepared. So we help the students in that regard where we, once again, show them the evisceration, show them the removal of the brain. And when I started actually doing my fellowship in 2007, and currently I've been the coordinator of the students as they are in our office. So usually when they first come on board, I'll be with them for a week, one-on-one, -on -one, showing them the evisceration process, showing them all of those aspects of the autopsy. And as their rotation goes on, we will slowly graduate them to more and more complex cases. So initially they're going to do cases in which the findings are more toxicologically related, tox cases such as drug overdoses, where they have the ability to learn their techniques, to hone how they're going to use their hands, and learn how to use the bone saw, and then move on to more complex cases where it might be structurally related. So uh, early on or earlier in my association with the PA program, I would give them didactic lectures and also have quizzes for them. As the years have moved on, I've shifted some of my responsibilities to include other things, but it's usually a very interactive rotation for the PA students. Okay. Okay. A friend of mine, she's there in Michigan and she's a PA, was telling me about a, uh, a course that's offered through the, uh, the Wayne County Medical Examiner's Office in the University of Mich Michigan. It's the Medical Legal Death Investigation course. Um, yes. So I, I looked online a little bit about that. Uh, and you're, you're involved with that as well. You do a few presentations over the course of it. Yes. When, when did that start? It's been on for quite a few years. I think it started in 1996, and we've oh, had wow. the annual okay. conference ever since then. Okay. And I know, uh, according to last year's schedule, you spoke on firearm injury and sharp force injury. Are these uh, like special interests for you? Why was it that you wanted to speak on those items? Mm -hmm. Yeah. To give a little information about the course itself, it's generally a four-day course. And during the course, we go, go over a number of different forensic topics. Differences between medical examiners and coroners, cause and manner of death, and then, as you mentioned, the various specific topics. Mine were firearms and sharp force injuries. But we cover right. other things, blunt force trauma, motor vehicle, drownings, electrocutions, things like that. 
also included in the course, we have workshops where we have our forensic odontologist, our anthropologist, and we open up our autopsy room where we have various stations where this, the participants of the seminar will go from station to station looking at various uh, injury patterns. So it's a, you know, that portion is also pretty interactive with the seminar participants. But the reason why I choose firearm injuries and sharp force is, you, you're correct, I, I do have uh, interest in those areas. I've always had interest with firearms, and I think having that understanding of various weapons, various types of ammunitions that are currently available only increases our ability to perform our autopsies. Uh, for example, mm -hmm. and this is not an endorsement of any particular ammunition or weapon, but you know, there are some newer ammunitions out there, such as the G2 rip. It's a particular type of bullet that fragments in a very specific manner as it enters the body. Uh, having an understanding of that particular ammunition will help clarify some of the things that you will look for during the autopsy. Now, as okay. that ammunition fragments in the body, some of those smaller portions may embolize into different more distal portions of the body. So if a person you know, isn't even aware of that particular ammunition, they may miss or not find a bullet embolus. So just having that understanding, having an understanding of the injury patterns that they can produce, I think, once again, just makes it easier to perform your autopsy. You have an an idea of what you might see. And I also use that information to help teach the other physicians and other students that come through our office. Now, people have a wide variety of exposure to firearms, for example, or, or sharp force or sharp objects, knives and axes and whatnot. And mm -hmm. it's, a, it's not easy to gauge what one person might know or what an, another person doesn't know. So being able to present them with physical examples of the different types of firearms provides them with information. And I think information is really critical to understanding because a person might have heard what a revolver is or might think they might know what a pistol is, but being able to physically look at the object compared to a traditional hunting rifle or the quote unquote, uh, scary AR 15, uh, being able to give them that physical appreciation will help educate them. And then hopefully that translates to education of other people as they go through their practice. So I, for myself, it's a very intricate and complex area of forensics that I, I definitely enjoy. And sharp force is another thing, you know, common items such as knives are everywhere and understanding when you're talking about stabbing versus cutting you know, what are those things and you might think that a, met, a medically trained individual would have that understanding but sometimes they just don't and it's not necessarily their fault but mm -hmm. by being able to educate them i think just helps the learning process sure what what types of people register for this course? Are they all in the medical field or other areas as well? It's pretty much open to anybody and okay. definitely medically, uh, medical professionals, but also we have a lot of police investigators 
or officers who attend a course during the, mm, if sure. you do attend the course, we have continuing medical education and also other credit for attending our course, but no, it's not restricted just to the medical field. It's pretty much anybody that wishes to take the course. Obviously our limitation is more space than anything. Our conference rooms are only so big. And, uh, to be honest, I'm not sure necessarily what we're going to do right now, just because of our current health situation of COVID-19 slash SARS-CoV-2. Right. Obviously we cannot pack a bunch of people in a seminar room. That just would be irresponsible. So I'm not exactly sure what's, what we're going to do with our seminar. Uh, we annually had it in the September, November time, and we've, we are not having it this year. Right now we've pushed it back to next spring and we'll see how things are next year. Okay. Okay. All right. So let's, let's get into the podcast. Detroit's mm -hmm. daily docket is a wildly popular uh, podcast that, like I said, it just finished its first season. How did the idea for this come about and what, why was this the right time to, to start this podcast? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The idea came from Dr. Lavity and Forensic pathology, unfortunately, suffers from a, lot, a couple of different things. One of the big things is that there is a shortage of medical examiners. Yes. And it could be for a number of different reasons, but we wanted to find ways that we can expand the number of applicants we have for our own building, obviously a little selfish mm -hmm. on our part, but we want to get people moving into forensic pathology. And we're trying to think of different ways to do so. And we, all of us in the office give lectures and presentations, but that only reaches a very small number of people, usually people that are they themselves interested in the area. But by opening it up in a podcast form, I, I think our audience is much more broad and it's not limited to those people who, like you said, can only come to our seminars. So, by having it out in the out in the ether, anybody that think they might have an interest are, is able to tune in and, and listen. So I thought it was an excellent idea on her on her part. And you know, she and I we work very well together. Where she has all these great ideas, and I sit back and I think, well, how can we bring about that idea to actual fruition? So thinking about the equipment that we need the you know, the method of recording editing hosting do we need a sound stage things like that those are all the things that i like to do so we were able to come up with an idea the list of topics and and take it forward as far as the current time now admittedly i'm not a social media expert at all i actually don't do a whole lot of social media things in general. And I didn't know a whole lot about podcasting. And the great thing about our time right now is I think that there is just an amazing amount of information at our fingertips. For those people that have access to the internet, you're able to do a quick search and find practically everything that you want. So I, I'm a heavy user of YouTube. And I searched on YouTube how to start a podcast and I used, you know, various podcasters out there. They, there was just an incredible amount of very helpful information that allowed us to bring this to fruition. Yeah, that, that sounds very familiar. Actually, I did pretty much the same thing. 
uh, for yourself. How did, yeah. uh, what, what, what brought you into this podcast world? You know, I, I found that there, there weren't a lot of, or any really podcasts that were pathology focused on the people actually working in the field, I guess. And mm-hmm. I thought, you know, wouldn't it be great if, you know, people like, you know, yourself and me and other lab lab professionals, if there was a podcast that talked about all of them and told, you know, we're kind of tucked away in the basement in the lab and nobody knows about us. And so I thought, what if I could, I don't know, tell the world about what we do. So it, that was kind of the original idea, I guess. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah. and then, like you said, I just started looking around and realized you know, this wasn't that hard to do. And it took some time and a lot of uh, learning, but you know, and I'm still learning how to do it. But, you know, it's kind of evolved from, from that. Yeah, I think, I agree. There's, because I didn't grow up in audio, I have no radio experience or broadcasting experience, just learning those things. Uh, it was kind of fun for me. Uh, yeah. There's a, yeah. it's a lifelong learning experience. I think uh, that that's what really enriches our own life and looking at the, you know, selecting the different type of, types of microphones and things like that. I, I found a, a a lot of fun and just bringing our whole office into this podcasting world, I, I think really helped boost the morale of the whole office. I mean, when we, when we were trying to put together our teaser, we had to record a bunch of different sounds and getting our announcer, we had contests to, for the people who wanted to be the voice of the oh, podcast okay. and also the cover art we had, uh, selections of that and it, i think the whole office really enjoyed getting involved with it sure sure and you've you've had pretty much the whole office uh, on the show at different times yes highlighting uh the different different jobs that that help make the medical examiner's office run mm-hmm. why why was it important to to do that i think the hard part for the general public to understand is what goes on behind the curtains, what happens in a medical examiner's office. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the people that come to our office generally have lost loved ones. You know, this is an incredibly difficult time for them. They, they're in a state of grief and the various stages of grief where you can provide them with information and you can tell them that we have investigators and photographers and this and that, but they hear a very small portion of that just because of their current psychological and emotional state. So that's completely understandable. So what our goal was, was to introduce everybody that works in our office to the public and let the public know that we have photographers, that we have investigators, that we have autopsy technicians and clerical and all of those people are critical to the function of this office. Without any one of them, we would not be able to function. You might think, well, sure, the doctor can take all the pictures and cut all the bodies and do everything. And that's not really true at all. If you had just the physicians doing that, the workflow would be extremely slow. So we have all those people in our office. And as I said, we wanted to expand our field. So by just letting the public know that we have photographers or we have autopsy technicians, people out there might not even know that. 
So if a person in the, in the public has an interest in photography and think, oh, hey, I might be able to do that. Why, why don't I? So as we, as we went through our season, time and time again, we, the message I received from the people I spoke with was that people had no idea that that position even existed. So yeah, it was important for us to highlight them because once again, they are critical to how we operate. And I, in the future, we plan to roll in some other individuals, such as our anthropologists, such as our odontologist, to let those other people know with other interests that yes, uh, don't count out working in a medical examiner's office. You know, one of the positions uh, that I personally found particularly interesting, you employ pathologist assistants there at Wayne County, uh, which is not yes, we do. commonly done throughout the country. How did that come about? There is, as I mentioned before, a huge shortage of forensic pathologists throughout the country. There's only about, I'd say, 500 of us in the whole, and that's really not a lot of people for all of the individuals that pass in the country. And unfortunately, that burden is hard to alleviate without more people coming into the field. So there's only a certain number of physicians who are going into pathology and a small portion of them who go into forensic pathology. So that spigot is pretty tight. And in order to, in order for us to perform our functions, we have to think of other alternative ways in which we can alleviate some of the burden off of all of the physicians. And one way was to increase our use of pathologist assistants. So as I mentioned earlier, the pathologist assistants that come to our office, we teach them how to do the autopsy. So as we bring in PAs as employees of the office, they're able to do some of those tasks also. Mm -hmm. with, with direct supervision, we can, or they can aid us in doing some of the autopsies and also some of the other tasks, such as helping x-ray bodies, helping our photographers, wrapping up toxicology kits. You know, those are all things that have to be done and somebody has to do them. So the pathologist assistants really help us in that regard. They have been an incredible help with the rotating medical students, you know, helping answer their questions and helping them learn the autopsy procedure. And also there's research projects that we perform. So having them help us do that is also incredibly valuable. So there's so many aspects of the office in which they've become very much integrated that it's sometimes hard for me to think of those years before when we didn't have the PAs in our office. And really the, some of the reasons why the utilization of pathologist assistance in forensic offices hasn't really taken off is because in one part, those offices may not even know that they can utilize or use PAs in that respect, or they might be afraid to use pathologist assistance. But that's really a fear that can be alleviated by having them or introducing them into the office. And it's not that you need to give them all the cases. Obviously, a, an office can utilize their talents in any way they see appropriate, but not even considering that really will make it difficult 
for our field to even survive. And years ago, when they were introducing pathologist assistance into search path, it was it was feared. But now, in many parts of the country, you wouldn't even bat an eye to think that uh, PA would be in surgical pathology. So that's how we want this field to go. And eventually it will, in my mind, but there are some hurdles that we have to overcome in order for that to happen. One of the uh, stated goals of the Detroit's Daily Docket podcast was to dispel myths about the field. And I found a quote from Dr. Lavity. She said, the field of pathology is often misunderstood in popular culture, which perpetuates the misconceptions dealing with the science. But we believe that if we can share the study of discovery, each case will tell a fascinating story of life. How do you think the podcast has helped to do that? With every death, there are many aspects to them. We in the office only see a small portion of that. We determine the cause and manner of death. But there is more to that. This person was somebody. They had a life. There was a before, and now we're seeing the after effects. Mm -hmm. And by integrating some of the backstories into our podcast, we can help flesh some of that out to illustrate that there's more to this field than just the death itself. Because unknown to a lot of people, we actually do have quite a lot of interaction with family members and the and the police and lawyers where it's important for us to be able to communicate the information that we have to those different arenas and hearing the information from family members and the police and lawyers can, can sometimes be the key portion of the case that allows us to progress for example Let's take a, an individual that has died in a fire. When we perform the autopsy, we see a person that is burnt and we can draw blood to see how much carbon monoxide they have in their blood. And the cause is easy to determine. It can be thermal body burns and or smoke and soot inhalation, but it's the manner of death that we need that other piece of information. So, as I said, we might see an individual that is burned, but it's the police detectives or the fire department that will tell us this was an arson fire that was intentionally set or might have been careless smoking. So that's the information that we need in order for us to proceed with our side of this person's passing. So by having that story, that background, it really helps integrate what we do. And those are some of the things that make this profession more fulfilling. It's not just cutting dead bodies. It's, it's more than that. It's the, it's the interaction with the public. It's the interaction with all the other workers in our office. And by being able to explain some of that to our listeners, I think it'll help them understand some of our thought processes, why some of our cases do take weeks months when mm -hmm. it's important for us to gather that information from the family to understand let's say a complex genetic issue so when a family member is frustrated that they don't have a result there's a reason for that and by able by being able to tell them in a podcast form some of the things that we're waiting for that i think that helps 
everybody understand this profession a little bit more. Sure, sure. And one of the things that I really like about Detroit's Daily Docket, in each episode, you you sort of explain, say, a different cause of death, and then you give uh, examples uh, from you know that are in the public record, generally celebrity oh. celebrities or, or something like that, uh, which helps to um, it, it makes it like a more practical learning experience, I guess. Is that was that intentional? Right. Yes, for sure. There are many aspects of the cause of death that can be confusing. Uh, in this, in season one, we spend a couple episodes on asphyxial types of deaths, for mm-hmm. example. And you know, asphyxia is a very wide, broad category. There can be smothering, strangulation, chemical asphyxiants. Some of those definitions sound very similar. And when you're reading through those chapters in the forensic books, you can be very confused with it, even for medical professionals. So they, you can read that strangulation is defined by A and then suffocation is defined by B, but there's extreme overlap between them. So if it's confusing to us, it, I'm sure it might be confusing to the general public. Right. So by being able to just step through those nuances of those different causes of death, it will help cement that understanding. And then we bring in the cases in which the general public, if they're interested, can look up themselves where they can see, oh yes, Robin Williams had XYZ and we talked about that and this is why that particular medical examiner might have came to that conclusion. Now, sometimes we might differ in that opinion, but Our goal is just to walk people through the findings and then also by having that association with, let's say, a celebrity death, then they can have a a better understanding of why that cause of death was issued in that particular case. Mm -hmm. So yes, we, we did that specifically. Okay. Forensic pathology is very popular in TV, movies, podcasts such as yours. There are many others that discuss cold cases and things like that. And yet, as you mentioned a couple of times, there's a shortage of forensic pathologists, not only in this country, but worldwide. Right. What, what can we do about that? Uh, the shortage, I think the reason why of this, well, I don't know specifically, but I think the reason for the shortage is definitely uh, multifactorial, as they say. Mm-hmm. Uh, most uh, physicians who go into medicine they want to treat the living there, understandably. They, they want to help heal an injury and they want to see that person progress through that injury and become healthy again. Well, forensic pathologists, they work slightly different. They obviously work on the dead. They don't work on the living. And the help that we provide is not necessarily directly to the decedent, but to the family or to the wider public. So some physicians who go into medicine, they don't want that indirect connection. They want to help directly uh-huh. the living. So that, that might be kind of hard for some people to steer into the pathology area. Now, in pathology itself, that too is, is pretty broad because pretty much any part of medicine that you can think of, there is a specialty in pathology. If you are interested in the heart, there's cardiac pathology. If you're interested in children, there's pediatric pathology or renal pathology, pulmonary pathology. 
So forensic pathology is yet another one of those subspecialties. So you have this big sea of subspecialties that might attract somebody else. So it's, it's hard to funnel those people into forensic pathology. Now, obviously some of the things that we deal with can be pretty, pretty traumatic or pretty horrific. So there are right. those people that simply, you know, they don't want to involve themselves in that. Understandably, it, it can be pretty uh, difficult to handle. So that's another reason why someone might steer away from forensics and testifying is a big part of what we do. People don't necessarily want to enter into the courtroom. Uh, I can say that most lawyers are very professional. They, they're, they uh, are very respectful and they just want us to relay our findings. And it's not like television necessarily where they're there to hammer on you and, and really ask you those tough questions. Sometimes it does happen, but for the most part, testifying is not that way. But there might be that, that picture in a person's mind that's what you're going to encounter. So that might be yet another reason why they don't necessarily want to go into a forensic pathology. Mm -hmm. And another reason might be that for the most part, a forensic pathology is a public service. Many times it's tied to a government entity of some sort, whether it's state, local, federal, and it's uh, not necessarily a private sector job. So there, there are those aspects of it also. So there's so many things that might make it difficult for a person to find themselves into forensic pathology. And another, as you, as you mentioned, the TVs and movies, that might be something that alters a person's perception of what forensic pathologists do. And I will admit to you, I actually, I like CSI. I know some people would. I do would, too. Uh, <laughs> yeah, people would say, how, how could you like that? And you're a forensic pathologist. And you have to understand that uh, these are television shows. They're made for entertainment. And if education comes along with it, that's great. But the, their goal is to get viewers. And like I said, I, I like CSI. But a person that grows up thinking CSI is forensic might be a little disappointed when they actually enter into that field or look into that field. If a camera crew followed me around and watched me type reports, that'd be incredibly boring. And that's <laughs> obviously not good TV. Right. So I understand that. And if you can understand that, then that's why I like the show. So I'm okay mm -hmm. with that. But television and movies make it difficult or can make it difficult for people to have a good understanding of what we do. So those are all the things that make it hard. And that's one of the reasons why we, we did this podcast to, to draw back the curtains, to let people know what we do do here in the office. Some of the things we do, some of the things we don't do. And if we can attract people to this profession, that's great. And for me, it doesn't matter what aspect, if it's attracting investigators, great. If it attracts photographers or clerical staff, and I don't want to discount clerical because they really are the key to our office. Mm -hmm. now, those are all things that are important. Just exposing the public can only be good in my mind. Sure. When can we expect uh, season two of Detroit's daily docket? Is there, are you already working on that? We are, we're writing some, some scripts, 
some or thinking of topics. Okay. Uh, some of the things that we plan to cover in season two include sharp force injuries, blunt force, maybe some postmortem changes. I know manner oh. of death is a topic that brings up a lot of discussion. So going over different manners of death and how we approach them. And we have you know, many pathologists in, in the office and we all might have a slightly different take on manner of death. So even if we disagree with our, with amongst ourselves, that's a good discussion to have. Other things uh, might in fact be including some television and movies where we will ask our audience to give us examples of medical examiners that they've seen in a TV or a movie, go through that scene in that show and maybe dissect out some of the things that they did right, some of the things that they did, that they did wrong. But once again, this is all entertainment. So it's, it's taking in a light fashion, not to criticize anybody. Uh -huh. And uh, something that's also popular or at least popular in people's minds is you know, quote unquote, getting away with murder. So uh, looking at some of those aspects in which it's actually very difficult to obscure a homicide from another type of death. Well, those are all some things that we're working on right now. Exactly when we'll start, we're not, we're not entirely sure. Uh, I think if we can get some, some scripts down and start recording in the summer, maybe fall or maybe winter time, we'll start up with season two again. Okay. That, that sounds very interesting. I, I know we're all looking forward to a new season. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you, that you wanted to mention? I just want people to understand that this experience has been really positive for all of us here. I know that, as you mentioned, there are just aren't that many podcasts out there that highlight forensics or pathology in general. And yes, you can get those specialty niche ones, but things that talk to people and just get it out to the public is ex extremely important. I think the more people that know about it can make the decision on their own to either pursue it or, or discount it. But if you never know of it in the first place, then you'll, you won't know what you don't know. Um, right. I think it, it's extremely important. I think what you do, what you do is, is, is excellent. So I definitely well, encourage you. you to continue. This, this has been fascinating. Dr. Sung, thank you very much for taking the time to, to talk with me today. Oh, I, I was happy to do so. And if you ever find yourself in our neck of the woods, I encourage contact me. We'll have you in. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you. Great big thank you to Dr. Lachman Sung. I'll have links to Detroit's Daily Docket and all of their social media accounts in the show notes. And of course, you can follow this show on Twitter at People of Path. So if you haven't already, go and subscribe to Detroit's Daily Docket and make sure you subscribe to People of Pathology podcast. And then share both shows with someone you know. And together, let's inspire their next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. I am a member and the CFO of the American Association of Pathologist Assistants. This show does not necessarily represent the views of the AAPA and receives no financial support from the AAPA. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast. <laughs>